to the girl who hates those hot dog leg selfies and just wants to snap up a hot deal. Oh, there's another one. Hashtag rest assured at Summer Girl 38. Message received. And to the working man who hasn't had a vacay in what feels like forever. It's just been so busy. That rest I... assured, Busy B. I got you. Please don't call me that. Whatever you're planning this summer, for a better rate, make it Maldron. Join now and save 10 euro at MaldronHotels.com. Terms and conditions apply. This is an American Crimecast production. Visit us at our new home at accproductions.org. And remember, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Born Norma Jean Baker, soon changed to Mortison. On June 1, 1926, in Los Angeles, California, she was the only daughter to Gladys Pearl Baker, and still an unknown father. Monroe spent her childhood and teen years in and out of 11 different foster homes due to her mother being institutionalized for her mental health. She was forced into an arranged marriage by her last foster family at the age of 16 to an 18-year-old James Daughtry, in order to move with her foster family and avoid being put into yet another foster home. During their marriage, James enlisted in the Marines in 1943, while Monroe went to work in the radio plane factory, helping to ensure parachute safety and preparing planes for flight. In 1944, she met photographer David Conover, who was at the factory to take morale-building photos of the all-pretty girls working in the U.S. Armed Forces Motion Picture Unit. Monroe was a natural talent in front of the camera, and she was instantly hooked to being a model. In 1945, she defied her husband's wishes and signed up to be a model in the Miss Emmeline Snivy's Modeling Group. By early 1946, she had appeared on 33 magazine covers and was on her rise to fame. Norma Jean tried several different pseudonyms before becoming Marilyn Monroe, Monroe being her mother's maiden name. Marilyn was her alter ego, and she often referred to herself in the third person. Friends of Monroe have stated that while out on the town with her, she would be disguised as a normal person. She would sometimes remove her disguise and instantly be swarmed by adoring fans. Afterwards, she would put back on her disguise and inform her friends that, quote, I just felt like being Marilyn for a minute. Marilyn rose to fame quickly and soon became only the second woman to head her own production company, as well as being one of the most sought actresses of her time. Pain doesn't skip even the best of people, and after three unhappy marriages, all ending in divorce, as well as several miscarriages, a few movie flops, and constant media attention, Monroe became somewhat of a recluse. She sought help through medical means and started taking prescription pills to help her cope with her depression, anxiety, paranoia, and other mental illnesses. After receiving treatment and dealing with legal issues with 20th Century Fox Studios, it looked like things were going great for her. She just signed a new contract with 21st Century, as well as rekindled her love with her second husband, Joe DiMaggio, with plans to remarry him. She had just recently bought her first home and was currently in the middle of moving in and decorating during the time of her death. She couldn't sleep at night. She would wash down the pills with champagne 
It was difficult to get her to wake up in the mornings. She had it in her head, in this maybe slightly drug-addled and booze-addled head, that he was going to leave his wife for her, the first lady. And that Marilyn maybe would become the first lady. I mean, it's kind of out there, to say the very least. He said, you know, you better keep your mouth shut if you know what's good for you. I know what's good for me. I'm Marilyn Monroe. She was screaming, get out, get out. She didn't want to see him again. Her world was really beginning to unravel that night. Was he capable of murdering Marilyn Monroe or being complicit with it? That's a major allegation. One evening she came to see me perform and walked through the door. And uh, the place was jam-packed. And the next thing I knew, this woman walked in and the place just stopped, like the world stopped. Nothing was said. Everybody just stopped. And she got out and she said, why are all these effing people looking at me? And I think somebody shouted, because you're Marilyn Monroe. That's a pretty good reason, right? She was not well that weekend. The poor woman should have been in a clinic. Uh, she was drugged and she was drinking and she was really coming unglued. It was the beginning of the end for her. There is a moment here at the Cal Naval Lodge the week before she died where Marilyn, in an angry rant, vowed to have a press conference to expose the Kennedys. This is a woman who now understands she does control some of the power and she's deciding whether or not to go public with it. Kennedy was absolutely reckless. I mean, it was not uncommon for him to have multiple different women a week while in the White House. Prostitutes, uh, secretaries. He had an affair with this uh, teenage intern at the White House. And this we're very confident on. So Kennedy could be extremely reckless. Does that mean he had the affair with Marilyn Monroe? No. Does it mean it's possible, even probable he did? Yes. It fits the uh, bill. Marilyn Monroe did not commit suicide. She was murdered. All right, everybody, welcome to Mysterious Circumstances, and this is part two of the death of Marilyn Monroe. This is where we're going to discuss some theories and some facts, and I am joined by two co-hosts um, this evening, one of which was Brooke. She is uh, a longtime listener. She's in the group, really cool chick, and she, uh, she is a big Marilyn Monroe fan, so she had a lot of insight uh, about this case, which was extremely helpful, and you will hear from her. Uh, when the time comes, I did record with her separately. But joining me right now is Shane fucking Waters. <laughs> I think I'm going to actually change my middle name to that just so that we're both <laughs> on top of things. You should. And now that we're doing a podcast together again for the first time in like six months, maybe we can lay to rest all those messages I get about me and you not working together anymore. <laughs> I think that I think it's funny when people because <laughs> it's. I mean, we communicate daily. If I don't hear from every, you every day. day, yeah, I think that someone murders you. <laughs> See, you're a lot smaller than I am physically. 
Yeah. So yeah. you, they, someone could kill you and hide your body. I think pretty decent. They could. Oh, dude. Me, I'd... on the other yeah. hand, me, they're gonna have to just leave me where I lie. You know. So, so when I don't hear from you for a day, I'm just like, where could they have put Justin? Yep. I know he's chapped up in a 55 gallon drum somewhere. But yeah, it's funny. Every time I get a message, it's like, hey, are you, are you and Shane still, still working together? And it's like, yeah, like every fucking day. It's like we got a goddamn network we're trying to put together here. Which might as well mention now, uh, Murder Under the Midnight Sun has joined us. Welcome, Ariel Jane. But yeah, we got a hell of a case, man. What were your initial thoughts when you started diving into this episode? Well, for me and you, this episode has been in the making for probably close to like two months, I want to say. Yeah. I mean, it's the wheels have been going for a long time. And I can honestly tell you right now, I ain't even recorded part one. I mean, I got the structure for it. I got my notes. I just haven't got around to doing it because I want to pay this woman the most respect possible. Yeah. But yeah, what were your initial thoughts? When you first brought it up, I thought that it would be another case of uh, someone who was larger than life, uh, someone who was, who was a big time celebrity who met an untimely death and that everyone didn't want to believe it. You know, a lot of times people have these these conspiracies come up because they just don't believe that someone larger than life could have met a, mm-hmm. a fate that a human I always agree. needs, uh, which is death. When I, when I started looking into more things and researching, I kind of switched. And so when we end this episode, I'll let you know where, where my okay. dial landed. What about you? What did you think? I had looked into it previously, even before I started a podcast, and I'm I don't want to say conspiracy theorist because I don't think that's the right term, but I'm always never convinced when there's when there's details that are so misconstrued, you know, as we'll later find out, I guess, when somebody supposedly takes 40 plus pills and the first ambulance driver on the scene does not smell any kind of odor in her mouth. And there is none found, there's no pill residue found in her, her stomach or her colon, but yet she overdosed on 40 plus pills. I really fucking find that hard to believe, man. You know, that, that just, it's one of those things that kind of rings some bells for me. And I don't know, after I decided to do it, I don't even know why I decided to do it. I think I might have watched something or, or something like that, or just, it crossed my mind and I was like, I was like, man, I was like, I wonder if I look into this a little further, what I could find. And I started digging around and it's, don't get me wrong. It's, it's a fucking conspiracy theorist, wet fucking dream because there's everything from fucking UFOs to CIA, to the mafia, to politicians, to communists, fucking everything. I mean, obviously I'll give my opinion on what happened after, after we do the facts and talk about some of the theories. And I think I'm really hoping, I can't say I think, I'm really hoping that when people listen to this episode, they walk away at least thinking a little bit more about it. If I can make a couple people out there just think a little bit more about it and maybe question what the official report says, you know, then I did my job. So, you know, if if I can do that, then I'm totally good. So with that, I guess I'm going to start off with start off with some facts. <sighs> Just got done working that 11, 11 and a half hour day and I need some fucking beer. All right. First of all, I'm going to give you the official LAPD timeline of events. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, it's not a very long timeline. Uh, this is pretty run of the mill. And after I give you the official LAPD timeline, we're going to talk about some facts about some people involved. And then we're going to give the timeline of events based on eyewitness accounts and people who were on the scene who were not previously reported to be on the scene. These eyewitness accounts include police officers, ambulance drivers, paramedics, um, who else? I mean, neighbors. We got all kinds of people involved here. Um, and that includes J. Edgar Hoover, some CIA wiretaps, and of course, the Kennedy brothers. But we're going to start off here at about August 4th. This is a LAPD police report timeline. Dr. Ralph Greenson, who was her psychiatrist, he did a house call, which he often did. Marilyn was one of his prized patients. He supposedly left at about 7 o'clock or so. At about 7 to 7.15, she received a call from DiMaggio Jr., who is her ex-stepson, I guess you could say. And uh, he states that she was in very high spirits, and he was calling to ask her about some, you know, relationship advice. From another account, Peter Lawford, who is the Kennedy's brother-in-law, they married one of the, he married one of the Kennedy sisters, and he is actually an actor and supposedly a friend of Marilyn Monroe, states that he called her at about 7.30 or so and canceled dinner. And he said when she called, she sounded very, very distraught. At 8 p.m., Eunice Murray, who was her housekeeper, uh, Eunice Murray was actually hired by Ralph Greenson. Uh, she was a psychiatric nurse of sorts, and we'll get more into their relationship a little bit later here. But she states that at 8 p.m., um, she goes into her bedroom. She takes the phone with her and locks the door. From then on, silence, total radio silence, until about midnight when Eunice Murray, um, she sees the light still on in Marilyn's bedroom really doesn't think too much of it again. So at about 3.30 a.m., Eunice Murray says the light is still on and the door is still locked. And the first person she calls is Ralph Greenson, who is Marilyn's psychiatrist. They end up going around to the side of the house and they break in from the window. And from what they say, they find Marilyn Monroe face down on the bed. Now at 3.50 a.m., she is officially pronounced dead. Now at 4.25 a.m., a full 40 minutes later, or what is it, almost 40 minutes later, um, the death is finally reported to the LAP. At 4.45 a.m., the first officer on the scene arrives, a man by the name of Jack Clemens. He is a 15-year vet, and he finds Eunice Murray, after an interview, vague and possibly evasive. And that is a direct quote. Now, he's sitting here talking to Greenson and uh eunice murray and he says greenson was just very very weird he says that he keeps telling him what happened he walks him he walks clemens into the bedroom and shows him a nightstand of about eight empty pill bottles like i said they were all empty they all had the caps neatly placed back on them all the pill bottles are neatly arranged on the nightstand and he says and i quote she must have taken all these. As he noticed that there was absolutely nothing to drink anywhere around Marilyn Monroe, in the bedroom, on the nightstand, 
but yet she managed to take, from what they say, 47 pills. No bottle of water, no champagne. She was known to wash her pills down with champagne. She was on a lot of medications that were prescribed by Greenson. She might have also dabbled recreationally. Obviously, he noticed that all the caps were back on the bottles, uh, the prescription bottles as well. And the first thing going on in his mind is, who the fuck's going to take 40 plus pills? Neatly put all the caps back on these bottles, neatly arrange all the bottles on the nightstand, and not, you know, and not even wash them down with anything. And he literally says in an interview, and I believe this interview is in 1982 or 1983, Jack Clemens was interviewed because they've done two reviews of this case. I think actually three. I'm not 100%, but I know they redid one in 1972 or 73, and I believe they did another one in 1982 or 83. And when he was interviewed, and I believe it was 82 or 83, uh, during that review, he literally says that his first initial thought was this is a staged crime scene because nothing was out of place whatsoever with the exception of naked Marilyn Monroe face down on the bed with, you know, the phone still in her hand. He obviously suspected that she was murdered right from the get go, but his uh, thoughts. And when he mentioned it, it was immediately put down. He you know, was told not to worry about it. She, it was an obvious suicide. There's nothing to it. So at about 10.30 a.m. later that morning, Thomas Noguchi, the coroner of the stars, who, if you remember my Natalie Wood episode, he was the coroner for her. He's also the coroner for RFK, Robert F. Kennedy later on, uh, James Belushi, uh, Sharon Tate. He was the main man in charge. He states that it was a quote-unquote probable suicide, and this is literally what went on the official death record. Uh, probable suicide, probably the first time and last time you'll ever see that on a uh, death certificate and a coroner's report. But uh, Thomas Noguchi felt that eh, she probably committed suicide. It's fine. So that pretty much ended it. I mean, she was buried a few days later. But that is the official LAPD timeline. Um, there's not really too much to it. Um, but as you're going to find out, there is a lot of shit that goes on in between this. Now we're going to get into, I suppose, a few little facts about some of the people involved. Uh, first of which would have to be Thomas Noguchi. Now, Thomas Noguchi, at the time of her autopsy, he was the deputy coroner. He is a low man on the totem pole, and for what reason he was given the job of doing the autopsy on Marilyn Monroe, we still do not know. But it should be known that five years later, this deputy coroner was the chief coroner, and he was the main man in charge. He was the head coroner of L.A. County. Either this guy was literally the greatest fucking coroner ever, or he got promoted real fast for a reason. Not throwing accusations around, just, just letting you guys know that within five years, he went from deputy coroner to chief coroner. And that is a very hard thing to do in L.A. County. Now, Thomas Noguchi also wasn't exactly sure how she died. There was no residue from any kinds of pills in her system, in her stomach. They were also capsules, so there would have been film left over. There was no 
residue left over in her colon whatsoever. I mean, the, the digestion process alone, that kind of counts that out. But the toxicology report says that she had enough drugs in her to kill three people. And it also should be stated, and this will come into play a little bit later, that there was lividity in the face and chest. Now, this is from her being on her stomach. All the blood flowed downward because of gravity. And that's why if you ever decide to look up her autopsy pictures, which are extremely sad, but they are out there. They're fairly easy to find. That's why her face looks so swollen, discolored. Same thing with her chest. And it should be known that lividity can disguise needle marks. All right. That should be that should be known. Another fun little fact is is phone taps. From 1955 until her death, the FBI was wiretapping Marilyn Monroe. Why were they wiretapping her? Because she had, you know, affiliation with people in the Communist Party. This was the time of McCarthyism. People left and right were getting blackballed, blacklisted, all kinds of shit like this. She was hanging out with some of these people. Her third husband was Arthur Miller. He was pretty much a socialist, but he was a little bit more of an anarchist, I guess you could say. Now, this will all come into play a little bit later, you know, I guess you could say, but it does go in with with the theories. In the early 1990s, a document surfaced that was dated August, August 3rd, 1962, which, as we know, is just uh, a day before these main events took place. Now, apparently what this CIA document said, it was related to the surveillance and the wiretapping of Marilyn Monroe. They were tapping her phones and they had her house bugged. Now, apparently this said, and I quote, we are aware that she is going to hold a tell-all press conference on Monday. We are also aware of her quote-unquote diary of secrets documenting her affairs with the Kennedys and the plot to kill Castro. Now, her diary of secrets was one of the things me and Brooke touched on. Marilyn Monroe carried a diary with her every fucking where she went. If it was not on her, it was locked in a file box. Now, she was known to literally write down everything. She was really, really weird about it. Now, supposedly, when she was having affairs with the Kennedys, which were found out during surveillance, and I mean, obviously, everybody knows about her and JFK. It was a pretty public thing there uh, more than once. And I believe after his birthday there in Madison Square Garden, where she sang him happy birthday, that's actually when he cut it off because Jackie O was finally like, listen, dude. Quit embarrassing your family and me, like knock the shit off. And it should also be stated that J. Edgar Hoover himself told Jack Kennedy the same thing. Like, listen, you got to keep this shit quiet, man. You know, you can't be just whoring around. But apparently she wrote down a bunch of stuff that the Kennedy brothers had told her, whether it would have been pillow talk or just in regular conversation. And this literally was about the CIA and mafia's involvement in killing Fidel Castro, which I don't want to say is fact, but it, it's pretty documented. You know, there there is evidence that this actually did try to go down. Sam Giancana being the main man from Chicago who was involved. These are national security. That's a national security threat. You know what I mean? If there's information like this out there floating around. Now, it is reported that Bobby and, and John Kennedy were also telling her secrets about the Cuban Missile Crisis before it even happened. 
So there's that, another national security threat. Now, how this all came to be was that there's a guy named Fred Otash, who was a private investigator, and apparently a guy named Bernard Spindell. Um, he was a guy who basically was hired by Jimmy Hoffa to find a private investigator to get dirt on the Kennedys by way of bugs and wiretaps. Now, in a 1990s interview, Fred Otash, who's a private investigator, did just that. He bugged her house. He wiretapped her phone. Now, in his interview in the early 1990s, when this CIA paperwork came out, which on a side note, I'll just say this right now. The CIA memo that was dated August 3rd, 1962, it was brought to light by a guy named Timothy Cooper. Now, a little bit into the mid-90s, Timothy Cooper totally discredited the document. He said it's fake. He wanted nothing to do with it. Well, another guy named Donald Burleson, he took this paper. And uh, Donald Burleson was, I hate to say, um, he was a big UFO researcher. He was a Majestic 12 researcher, which if you guys have not looked into the Majestic 12, that's a really cool incident, conspiracy theory, all that kind of good shit. It's really interesting. But anyway, that's a whole other episode. But um, he found this document and he actually filed an appeal because he wanted he approached the CIA and said, I want transcripts of the wiretaps of of Marilyn Monroe's phones. Now, what he did was when the CIA re refused to release the transcripts, he filed an appeal with the federal court. Now, the appeal, the appeal was accepted. Now, he still didn't get any transcripts. None were released. But it's a really, really weird thing because the CIA almost authenticated this document because the appeal was accepted. Now, how that goes is the acceptance of the appeal process. It demonstrates the document is pretty much authentic because the CIA would have denied authenticity and turned the appeal down, but they accepted it. Now, it's contrary to policy to accept any Freedom of Information Act request or appeal based on documents which CIA does not acknowledge to be authentic. So by saying that, by saying they accepted the appeal, they are technically saying that this document is authentic and this is when the next review of this case comes up and this is when all these other people started coming out of the woodwork including fred otash the private investigator and uh you know bernard spindell now there were a lot of other people interviewed during the process including like neighbors who were still alive there's videos of interviews with all kinds of people that were remotely involved in this case. You can find those on, on YouTube. Now, let's go ahead and get into some other people that were on the scene. Uh, first of all, Ralph Greenson. Ralph Greenson was her psychiatrist. He was also pretty much um, a total asshole because he was also having an affair with Marilyn Monroe. And this obviously would pretty much disbar him or whatever the fuck you want to call it. He would lose his medical license if anybody would have found out about this affair. It was pretty well documented in her little diary of secrets, which is what they called it. It's little, that little red diary. Now, Greenson has a lot to lose. 
and I'm going to get into the eyewitness timeline here soon enough. And I'm sorry I'm a little all over the place, but this case is like so fucking weird. Yeah. So weird. There's so much shit going on. That's why I'm letting you just ramble but, on. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it. But Ralph Greenson was a known communist. He was a member of Comintern, which is the International Communist Political Organization. Now, when it comes to conspiracy theories that, you know, might even get the KGB thrown in the mix. But at the time of McCarthyism and at the time of shitload of communism fears, I mean, all kinds of shits going on with the, you know, the, you got Cuba down there causing shit. You got the government trying to kill Fidel Castro. They're using the help of fucking the American mafia. That should be known, and that does come into play. Uh, Ralph Greenson is also the person that hired Eunice Murray. Eunice Murray, as I said earlier, was Marilyn Monroe's housekeeper. She was hired, like I said, by Greenson, and how this came about was Ralph Greenson bought Eunice Murray's house. She lived there a couple months. She couldn't afford it. Ralph Greenson bought it off of her and actually uh, employed her after that. Now, Marilyn Monroe, there are a few people who have claimed you know to have read Marilyn Monroe's diary while she was still alive now supposedly it was stated in there and there were also you know wiretaps and shit and we'll jump back to the wiretaps here in a second it also says that she felt like she was constantly being watched and you know did Ralph Greenson hire Eunice Murray specifically just to keep tabs on Marilyn to see what she was doing 24/7 because technically she was her maid. She fucking took care of Marilyn. She took care of everything. She literally gave her an enema daily, if not every other day. I mean, that was part of her job description, as fucked up as that sounds. Now, as I did state with Brooke, which you guys will hear here in a second, you know, Marilyn was on a lot of medications. And a lot of those medications um, consisted of side effects of constipation. And that was one of the reliefs from it. And also, uh, she used it as a dietary supplement. So, I mean, it was kind of routine for her, unfortunately. Another thing I suppose we could go ahead and touch base on is some more info on the wiretaps. Now, the wiretaps supposedly picked up all this information. According to Otash in this interview, which he did, I, like I said, I believe in the early 90s when this, when this document came to light, he was asked if he heard the bugging tapes, and he said, yeah, I heard them. He said they were running the day she died. So they asked him what he heard, and he says he heard her and Robert F. Kennedy had a very violent argument. He said that Marilyn was stating that he had promised to leave his wife and marry her, and Marilyn was mad because he broke his promise. Now, this is when supposedly he threatened or she threatened to hold a tell-all press conference. We're going to flip back to uh, July here at the, you know, the, the Cal, Neva, Cal Neva Lodge, a little incident that occurred there, which will touch base a little bit more on the, uh, the tell-all press conference that she said she was going to hold. But basically, she was tired of getting played by the Kennedys, so she was going to bring those affairs to out in the open is basically what it was. He also states a very interesting story and how this story goes. Uh, I don't even want to go there yet. And he also states another interesting story, but we're not going to get there just yet. 
Um, first, we're going to touch base on what happens at the Calneva Lodge. Now, the Calneva Lodge is obviously a lodge. It's on the California-Nevada border. Uh, July 27th through the 29th, Marilyn shows up. She's on a shitload of drugs, uh, and she kind of has a breakdown. Um, some of the people who were there are, you know, Buddy Greco, Sam Giancana, Frank Sinatra, a bunch of mobsters, entertainers, Sammy Davis Jr.'s there. You know, everybody's hanging out partying. Marilyn Monroe shows up. It's at this point in time, it's supposedly at this event that more than one person here, Marilyn Monroe say, you know, she gets to the point she's so fucking pissed off that she's, you know, starts threatening. She starts throwing threats around. She's like, I'm just going to tell everybody this. I'm going to tell the press that because I guess she's tired of getting fucked with. She's tired of getting walked all over at this point in time. And she's totally fucked out of her mind on on some pills from eyewitness eyewitnesses who were there. Um, it is also at this time that she is reportedly, um, while under the influence of some narcotics, she is reportedly raped by two mobsters by the name of Johnny Roselli and Skinny D'Amato. Um, that is taken to be fact, um, and it is said uh, her you know, second husband, Joe DiMaggio, was friends with Skinny D'Amato and and actually, I guess he didn't really talk to him or anything for about 20 years after that. Personally, I'm surprised that he ever did at all. But there is that. So there is knowledge of her holding a press conference before this CIA document is released. So, I mean, just you got to keep that in the back of your mind also. Now, uh, J. Edgar Hoover also is involved in this. He had approached John Kennedy and told him to keep his affairs more quiet, keep them out of the White House, you know, quit making yourself look like a fucking whore, you know, all this other shit. And, um, you know, that's, you know, this was right around the time of the whole, you know, birthday shenanigan. And even before that, because John Kennedy had a really bad reputation of being a total man whore. So that's pretty much that. All right. And I guess. With some of those smaller facts out of the way before we start touching base on a timeline compiled of information from wiretaps and documents and eyewitness accounts, I'm going to go ahead and um, cut to me and Brooks interview where we uh, touch base on a lot of that. Then when we come back, me and Shane are going to start going into some details. So we'll be back here in a minute. Brooke has given me the pleasure of gracing me with her presence this evening. Hi, my name is Brooke, and I actually talked to Justin about doing this Marilyn Monroe episode, and he has kindly um, adhered to my request, and thank you very much for having me. Oh, dude, the pleasure is all mine. It was, It's funny because I always post shit in the group, and depending on what people comment... I'll approach them, and you said the right thing at the right time, and I was like, hey, how would you fucking like to give me your theory and what you have to back it up? And like me and you have been discussing on and off, I think we set the wheels in motion on this episode probably like two months ago or something like that. It's been a long time. I'm really excited to see what you have to say, even though we've been talking about it for half an hour off record, but... I guess we can get started with probably your personal most um, least plausible theory. 
And you had mentioned, and I agree, the least plausible theory is the UFO theory. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I actually found this theory, and you said that you hadn't heard of it, and I was really I excited to prove you into uh, this UFO theory. So, okay, um, what I found out, it's the most recent conspiracy theory, and what they were saying was that the information that she had found out um, from President Kennedy and various other sources was going to be a part of her press conference that she was going to have, mm -hmm. and that she was going to leak all of the information that she had found out and things like that, and that the government had her assassinated. So, so great. I really can just check off that that's probably the very least plausible theory, at least in my book. So. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so I guess um, with that, let's touch on, I guess, a little bit on the suicide theory. Okay. Where would you like to start on that? Um, I guess we could start off with her early life. She did have a lot of psychological trauma. There's no fucking doubt about that. She had literally one of the most depressing lives I have ever fucking researched. It is extremely fucking sad. But it makes me smile on the inside to know that she persevered through this to become literally one of the most recognizable people in fucking history. Just a traumatic experience after traumatic experience. In all honesty, it's a fucking movie in itself. Her fucking life is literally a movie in itself, let alone the fact that she, you know, I'm no, you know, expert on, on mental illness, but at the end of the day, she more than likely branched off into like a, you know, borderline personality disorder type scenario. Um, she really embraced the Marilyn Monroe personality because I think that really let was her release from herself because she had a fucking shitty life. She truly did. The facts of the timeline combined with the amount of pills she would have would have had to take to actually kill herself you know dr greenson who was her psychiatrist who literally eunice murray before any fucking buddy else before she calls an ambulance before she calls the police she calls her fucking psychiatrist now eunice murray as we know was hired by Dr. Greenson. Dr. Greenson actually bought her old house. She had bought a house in Brentwood, and her and her husband, after a few months, found out that they couldn't afford it, so Dr. Greenson bought their house and ended up employing her. And she was, of sorts, a psych uh, psychiatric nurse. And she technically was there to watch over Marilyn, but the timelines don't match up. Eunice Murray changes her story numerous times. The fact that Marilyn would have had to ingest 40-plus pills, according to Greenson's report. All these pill bottles were lined up very nicely on the nightstand beside her. Um, with the lids on, 
it just doesn't add up. There were no, there was no residue. There was no capsules found in Marilyn Monroe's stomach. There was none found in her colon. Uh, it was known that Eunice Murray was giving her daily enemas, at least, you know, daily if not every other day. And part of this was a dietary supplement, and part of it was because the medication that she was on did cause constipation. But I don't think she would have had the ability to kill herself after taking that many pills, let alone taking that many pills, your body's going to reject it. Um, do you want to touch a little bit on that, Brooke? Well, I also wanted to add that um, additionally, she didn't have any water anywhere near her. No. And she could not take pills without something to wash it down with, especially 40-plus pills. Even if you can dry swallow one or two, everybody's taking an Advil and a pinch, you know, without any water. But that's a lot and that's just not going to be feasible um, in addition to the rejection that your body is going to be going through already. Probably, I would say just as a layman, without that medical training, probably halfway through you're going to start having those effects. Yes. Um, but that may not be true. But regardless, you are not going to be able to ingest 40 to 50 pills without anything anywhere near you, um, which there wasn't. So, um, I agree that that's definitely another, another little tidbit to, to consider with that suicide theory, um, before even getting into the things that just kind of didn't add up. Touching base on that too. Like she was, according to, um, one of her friends that was over at the house earlier that day, she was a little bit moody earlier on in the morning and afternoon from what I understand. But one of her last phone calls was uh, to Joe DiMaggio Jr. And Joe DiMaggio Jr. called her for advice on um, a fiancé that he had recently broken up with. And because of her marriage to Joe DiMaggio, which them two were actually friends, pretty good friends after the divorce, Joe Jr. Um, still was very, very close with her because he really... He really liked her. He really did. And she thought of him, even though her and Joe weren't married very long, that was literally the only child figure that she had in her life. So she held him very close. And he had said, I believe it was between 7 and 7.30, one of the very last phone calls that she had she had made or received. I believe Joe called her. Um, mm -hmm. and he said she was in great spirits, you know, and, and that totally contradicts what Eunice Murray and Dr. Greenson had stated to the LAPD that she was depressed. She was on suicide watch, all this mm -hmm. other stuff. Joe Jr. knew her longer than those two people right there. And he was like, no, he's like, she was in great spirits. She was very, you know, very in it. She, she didn't seem disoriented. You know, he's like, she was very happy go lucky. Just like I always knew Marilyn, you know? So the depression factor, I guess, I don't want to say I can rule it out completely, but when it comes to shady ass Eunice Murray and shady ass Ralph mm -hmm. Greenson, I'm going to believe Joe DiMaggio Jr. over those two right there. Because at the end of the day, 
you got to think, who has more to lose by lying? Joe DiMaggio Jr. has absolutely nothing to fucking lose. And Eunice Murray and Dr. Greenson have everything to lose by lying. I agree. I agree. And also, there are a lot of people and just change your mood. I mean, just absolutely change your mood from terrible <clears throat> to elated in one uh, phone call. Uh, yeah. um, and that may or may not be, you know, what Joe DiMaggio Jr. was for her. Along with that, she had been making plans. Um, from what I had read on several accounts, she had been making plans to go to Mexico, yeah. and she had some friends down there in property and this and that. And she had been voicing these things. Um, mm -hmm. And there are a lot of folks that will tell you that you can be extremely happy right before you commit suicide. And that's yeah. absolutely true. It is true. Um, but traditionally, they're not going to make plans and try to follow through on them. You know, they'll make plans just so you don't catch on. But um, they're not going to make plans and, and, and move forward with that planning stage as from what I've read she was doing. So um, coupled with that phone call, it just seems more unlikely that she would take that route, yeah. to be quite honest. And, and a lot of people always refer back to her career. They're like, she was 36 years old. You know, there's mm -hmm. a there's a lot of rumors about the fact that her breast implants, the injections were going bad, and she was going to need a double mastectomy because of that, and that would totally ruin her career. But that's totally unsubstantiated. We have... Mm -hmm. That's just rumor, okay? And the fact that she had just gotten fired from, you know, the movie set, the movie of Something's Gotta Give, you know? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, she just worked out a four-movie deal with Fox Studios... For literally the most money she had ever fucking made in her life. She was so grossly underpaid in her time. And she had literally just finally cut that deal. That would fucking mm -hmm. solidify her as one of, one of the, if not the highest paid actresses in Hollywood. So it's like, you can take the rumors of her being depressed. Or you can look at the facts. You know, and, and the fact is, is she just had made this deal. She was, she literally, I don't want to say was on top of the world, but she had finally gotten to the point that she had reached for, for so fucking long. She was respected by the studio. I mean, she was not a bad actress. She really wasn't. And, you know, the persona and the stereotype, she was stereo, you know, stereotyped and uh, stereo casted, I guess you could say. For, for quite a long time, and she was trying to get out of that so bad, and she finally had um, that I just don't see why at a high point, at the age that she was at, I don't see why the the suicide factor, you know, comes into play. And t trust me, like, after fucking researching her life, I would have offed my fucking self a long time before that, <laughs> you know, and... A lot of a lot of what they said, I mean, and I and I'm glad that you talked about the uh, being typecast and everything because she had just started her own studio as a yeah. as a product yeah. of all of that. I mean, you know, when you get part after part after part of the same thing, and you say, "Look, I'm a serious actor. Give me that chance." 
and they say, no, you just stay in your corner, um, that's really frustrating. And so she said, fine, screw you. I'll do it myself. I'll show you how how it really can happen, how how I can, you know, progress and move forward and and elevate myself in this career. And then she did it. And then Fox comes back and says, no, no, wait, hold on. Don't do that quite yet. Yeah. Here, come back here, and you can negotiate whatever you want, however you want. Yes, Miss Monroe, we'll do it for you. Um, so, so that also with her life was just a Shakespearean tragedy for Pete's sake. It was, it was like up. one thing after another after another. I know if I would be strong enough to handle all of that for certain. Dude, I tell you, it was fucking depressing. It. I've researched yeah. a lot of depressing cases, but her life was literally sad as fuck. It's like, God damn it, I just want to hug this woman. You know what I mean? Just like, give yeah. her a great big fucking hug and say, you know what? It's going to be all right, God damn it. But yeah. it's just... And what sucks is that every time she, she you know, climbed that that ladder, it was like getting knocked down three yeah, like more rungs because it was one thing after another. I mean, for God's sake, she had three divorces in the 1940s and 50s. Yeah. That was huge. You can't even yeah. divorce one time before you're just cast off onto the leper islands. I mean, for, yeah. for real. Yeah. Let alone three, uh, I believe it was three miscarriages as well. And I mean, yeah. you know, I'm not here or there. You know, I I would hope that the substance abuse that did take place, because obviously she did have problems with substance abuse, you know, I hope that wasn't what was playing a factor. You know what I'm saying? And I think Marilyn was the type of woman, character-wise, I think what she had gone through in her life, if she would have been pregnant, I think she would have embraced it 150%. I think she would have said, mm -hmm. this is it. Like, I'm going to be the mom that I never fucking had. You know, you know, three miscarriages, three divorces. And granted, when she was married to Jimmy early on, I mean, she was 16 when she married him. She was just a kid, you know. And unfortunately, yeah. you know, it was one of those things where he was the neighbor boy and instead of her going back to the orphanage again, Jimmy's mom is like, hey, you know, why don't you fucking marry Norma Jean so she doesn't have to go to the orphanage? And granted, they knew each other for a couple years. They didn't have a bad marriage. They really didn't. You know, she wasn't happy. She wasn't sad. But they just, it wasn't there, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. But like you had said, you know, three divorces, a couple miscarriages. She had been in and out of psychiatric care a couple of times by this, by the late fifties, you would have been fucking blacklisted. She was married to Arthur fucking Miller, who was involved mm -hmm. in, you know, what is it? The MacArthur fucking blacklisting, you know, M McCarthyism, I believe is what they call it now, um, mm -hmm. where he was a communist sympathizer. She would have been fucking blacklisted. But she came out early on, started her own production company, and is like, hey, this is, you know what? She's like, I know I'm a brand. You know, I hate saying that, saying it like that. But at the end of the day, her fucking estate today still brings in $5 million a year. And that's mm -hmm. just from pictures, fucking t-shirts, and whatever. Like, you can't find her fucking movies. Nobody's buying her movies anymore. Nobody's replaying her shit. 
But we all know who the fuck Marilyn Monroe is, and people are still buying that shit because she's a fucking mm-hmm. icon. You know, playing into the suicide factor, she knew that. She was, like, on top of it all. And she had finally broke free of that stereotype. She had persevered through all this shit up until 1962. And it's like, I don't see how the suicide factor is a plausible theory, I guess. Take into account the mental illness factor. Her mother was a paranoid schizophrenic who was literally institutionalized for most of Marilyn Monroe's life. And even after she died, she outlived Marilyn by, I think, 20 years. Even when Marilyn died, she set up her will to make sure that her mother was paid for and taken care of. Strong sign of Marilyn's character just because of the early shit in her life where her mother would not let her get adopted. Like, there were three families that wanted to adopt young Norma Jean and take her out of state. And her mother kept putting the fucking axe on it, man. Just saying, no, that's my daughter. You know, you're not going to adopt her and take her away from me. And it's like, not to be an asshole, but bitch, you're in a fucking nut house. Like, the best thing you can do right now is literally get the fuck out of her life, sign your shit off, and let her fucking go be happy somewhere. But she wouldn't fucking do that. She just kept holding on. And Marilyn would visit her, like, after she had fame. And, you know, it was said that her her mom was distant, you know, almost angry all the time. It's so fucking sad because, like, that was who Marilyn had. She technically didn't know who her dad was. You know, we pretty much have a good idea of who it was. But technically... You know, she didn't know. Like, her mom was all she fucking had from her youth. The mental illness of her mother. Her grandfather on her mother's side was mentally ill. Her grandmother on her mother's side was mentally ill. You know, this is, we're talking about hereditary, bipolar disorder, fucking manic depression, whatever you want to call it, paranoid schizophrenia. This shit's fucking genetic. And Marilyn actually had a real fear of losing her fucking mind, which is a, it, it was a strong fucking fear that she had, but at the same time, she had persevered until the age of 32. She had made it past the point of her mother losing her fucking mind. She was pretty much in the fucking clear. And I'm not going to say she didn't have fucking problems from the childhood she did have. She had a lot of fucking problems. And I can tell you right now, anybody that had that life would have a lot of fucking problems. But she was also on medication for those problems. Granted, whether the medication was right or wrong, or whether it was overprescribed or underprescribed, or the mixture of pills might have done something, I honestly don't take into account the, the voluntary suicide factor, nor the accidental suicide factor, because of the amount of pills that it was stated she had took, blah, blah, blah. You know, the fact that the fucking pill bottles were neatly arranged on the fucking nightstand with the caps on them, her body's on her stomach, nude. Like you had said, you know, in many fucking studies and statistic-wise, when women do commit suicide, they try to make themselves look very, very good for their death. Which, you know, hey... 
you know, to each their own. Sorry, ladies. But, uh, you know, if it were me, I'm going to look like a bag of fuck. And I'm just going to hang myself from a tree <laughs> buck-ass naked, okay? Just to create a scene. But, no. Well, no. I'll back it up and say that if, if it were me, <laughs> I would make some sort of preparation. <laughs> so, I'll back that theory up. I'll back it up. <laughs> But no, I mean, did you want to add anything to that? Because I mean, I just touched base on quite a few things right there, and I would lo- I would love your opinion on that. Well, um, aside from the little bit of vanity that I just kind of checked <laughs> off there, she's that, like, um, I would look I'll be beautiful. I'm okay with it. <laughs> um, with with having multiple suicide attempts before, um, actually, one time that very first time that she confessed to um, having tried to commit suicide, she was in that first marriage. Yes. Um, Because she was just so disillusioned with the whole thing. Like housewife did Mm -hmm. not suit her kind of thing. No, it didn't. Um, She said it was boring. Yeah. And especially in the, in the late forties, that divorce option isn't, at mm-hmm. all as prevalent as it is now. Yeah. So you, you can't just run out and go, yeah, that's fine. I'll just get a divorce. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but going back to that, that if she had so many suicide attempts, logic would tell us um, in most cases that on purpose, if she had done this on purpose, it would be much more thought out and planned. She wouldn't be, you know, nude holding a phone with pill bottles, just random well, not random, but sitting right beside her bedside, um, to me, it would be much more, I'm dressed, I'm ready, here's who's going to find me. There's a plan in place. Her finances would be in order. Everything would not have any loose ends to it. Um, With her having experience in this multiple times, it seems to me, at least, like those things would have been done and they weren't. Yeah. So... For me, just based on that, it puts a big check in the less plausible factor for me, um, which you and I have already talked about what I think and what you think. And mm-hmm. so this this voluntary suicide wasn't on my list um, as, as plausible for me. So I guess uh, what theory would you like to touch on a little bit next? Let's see here. Um, I guess we can go ahead and delve into JFK because I know that's the one that um, most folks, if they don't believe the suicide theory would be most familiar with. So if you want to, if you want to do that first, it was speculated that him and Marilyn Monroe had had an affair. Um, It really wasn't publicly brought to light until Madison Square Square Garden on JFK's birthday when she came out and sang Happy Birthday. Um, of course, she was introduced, I believe, by Peter Lawford. And, um, fucking limey motherfucker. Anyway. Um, Agreed. Yeah. I'll, I'll say he was <laughs> he a fucking was a, weasel. He was a fucking weasel, man. But pretty much after that, And I don't even want to say rumors. There were people who were closely connected with JFK who at the time and still in later interviews said, yeah, we fucking knew what was going on. And I believe there was a weekend in Palm Springs where there were witnesses to them actually hooking up. So it's not the fact that it didn't happen, I guess. It goes to the extent of the affair. A lot of the theories... 
one side of it is there's no way it could have happened. And basically they're saying that Marilyn Monroe was disillusioned with the fact that JFK was going to leave Jackie and she was going to somehow become the first lady and fucking live, you know, the princess, you know. I mean, for those of you outside of America, I know I have a shitload of international listeners. And those of you in America do understand the Kennedys were literally fucking American royalty. Like, they could do no wrong. They're, they were fucking untouchable. And, obviously, <laughs> they still pretty much are. It's, it's pretty, I see you shaking your head there, Brooke. You're like, yeah, yeah. pretty fucking much. Yeah. It's, and that's, that's the <laughs> honest agree. to God truth. It's, the Kennedys, they say Camelot this, Camelot that. They were literally American fucking royalty from day one, from Joe Sr., from Joe Kennedy Sr., who was a fucking criminal in his own right, but we're not going to go into that <laughs> spectrum, right? That's a whole nother fucking episode right there. Pretty much what happened was, is what they're saying, is that Marilyn Monroe was very adamant on JFK. He would call, she would call the White House repeatedly. She would want to talk to JFK. She would want to further the affair. She would want more out of the affair. She wanted it to be more of a relationship, more exclusive. JFK, who was a pretty promiscuous guy, and that's, that's the nice way of putting it. JFK pretty much fucked everything with legs. That was, was that was not was a guy. Just, yeah, he was a fucking man whore. He was fucking secretaries. He was fucking interns. He was fucking actresses. He didn't care. She was literally just a piece of ass to this fucking guy. Just another piece of ass. But she didn't see it that way. Because of her background with so much abuse and so much... Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, rejection. You know, she had gotten that acceptance from somebody of extremely high power who was older than her. Not not by much. Not by much at all. Maybe like, I think, nine years older. But she had a thing. She had fucking daddy issues. Not even gonna lie. She was into older dudes. You know, it is what it is. But he would not give her what she wanted. So basically, this little red diary that she had kept... And she had kept this little red diary either on her at all times or in a locked file drawer in her fucking house. She had written about the affairs with JFK. Now, what she had also written about is some of the pillow talk between her and JFK. And that would be the Bay of Pigs. That would be the Cuban Missile Crisis. These are fucking national secrets. This is like... NSA, CIA type shit. And JFK, being the fucking man whore that he is, yeah, he's just fucking talking shit, you know, after he gets done, you know, pumping one out, whatever. Well, she, you know, contrary to popular belief, Marilyn Monroe was not fucking stupid. Marilyn Monroe was a very, very smart woman. And she wrote all this stuff down in this diary. And pretty much what it comes down to is the night that she died, 
It is said that she had called the White House. They don't know whether or not she actually talked to JFK or whether or not she talked to Jackie. But basically, she has been stated a week prior to her death, up until this point, that if JFK didn't fucking acknowledge her, that she was going to hold a press conference that following Monday and expose him and Robert F. Kennedy. Now, where Robert F. Kennedy comes into play is what we're probably, the next theory we're going to touch on after JFK, because he is included in this. But it's stated that JFK had it arranged for her to be murdered, whether it be by mobsters or by the associates of his brother and brother-in-law, because it is said that JFK told Robert F. Kennedy, who was in San Francisco at the time, to get the fuck to L.A., have this taken care of, go talk to her, talk her out of this. She is being fucking crazy. She's going to ruin literally my presidency and my fucking life. And obviously, if he would have lost his presidency, RFK is losing his fucking job as attorney general because Lyndon B. Johnson ain't having none of that shit. So it's like have this taken care of, and Robert F. Kennedy goes to L.A., you know, has a talk with Marilyn, there is, an, there is a conflict, there is an argument, believe it or not, there are several eyewitnesses that do say they saw Robert F. Kennedy at the scene later that night, around, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Brooke, around 10 p.m., or was it like 8 to 10 p.m.? Um, what I've read was, um, there were varying just as any other okay. witness okay. would have, but it was, it was anywhere from nine to 10 okay. is what I have. It was between that time. Okay. You know, as it turns out there, Robert F. Kennedy, you know, says I was in San Francisco at the time. I was not even there. Well, come to find out he was full of shit because there are several eyewitnesses that place him at the scene that night, along with Officer Franklin. Peter Lawford. Yeah, Peter Lawford, too. Why don't you tell us about the little uh, excursion that Peter Lawford and, and Robert F. Kennedy went on that night? Well, there was a detective that stopped a car. It was a... Um, an Oldsmobile, I believe, mm-hmm. and it was going 80 miles per hour at 12.41 a.m. The, um, the morning on. So when the detective goes to the window and he knocks on the door, he sees none other than Peter Lawford in this vehicle. And then he sees also other persons, one of which in the back seat is RFK, Robert Kennedy. And he said that immediately he was recognizable because he had been on security detail for RFK before. Um, so he knew what this this man looked like. And I don't know about the international folks, but I know that every citizen in the U.S. can spot a Kennedy. Oh, yeah. um, they're very distinctive and it's very hard to, to mistake someone. So, um, also in the car, a third person was none other than Queenson. Yeah. So, these three amigos were being stopped and pulled over by this detective going 80 miles an hour right after all of this went down. 
I don't know. It just seems a little bit shady to me when I don't know why RFK was saying that he was in San Francisco and getting pulled over in L.A. Mm -hmm. That seems a little bit of a distance, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. (laughs) Maps can be deceiving sometimes. Yeah, definitely. The the Google Navigator can lead you astray at times. Yeah, but not from San Francisco <laughs> to L.A. jurisdiction. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, RFK was there. And don't get me wrong, in 1972, they re-reviewed a lot of this case. And that's when they finally started asking witnesses again, you know, whether or not Robert F. Kennedy was there. Um, in which case, several of them said yes, he was, and that included, uh, I believe it was the neighbors on both sides of Marilyn Monroe, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, one of them, and, the, you know, the sad thing is, is everybody's like, oh, it was pitch black at night, you know, it was later at night, pitch black, how can this little lady see, you know, across the street or next door, and it's like, listen, at the end of the fucking day, that her place was well lit, okay, just like every fucking expensive house in Brentwood, alright, and you can guarantee that some little old lady staring out her fucking window is probably gonna be pretty fucking nosy, alright, And, like you had said, every fucking person in the world knew who JFK and RFK were. And like I said, a lot of the overseas listeners that I do have might not realize the significance. But it is literally like, I can't even think of a person to compare it to. You know what I mean? Like Brad fucking Pitt or something. Like some huge fucking... I would, I would venture to even say um, Queen Elizabeth oh, or yeah. the Prince of Wales. Yeah. Or, because even in Europe, even if you're not um, you know, a citizen of England, you're going to know that, that British exactly. royalty in Australia and so forth. So um, that, would, that would be, for me, the closest comparison that I could reach yeah. because from British royalty – to American royalty, those are going to be the closest for me um, that I would know of. I would totally agree, 110%. And um, so basically that's pretty much where that theory comes into play. It's really, I don't know, messed up how it went down. And like you had said, there's varying reports on how long they actually knew each other, how long the fling was going on. You know, Marilyn's masseuse was an was also an actor who was known to give her, yeah. you know, body massages when she couldn't sleep. You know, she yeah. from a very early time in Hollywood, she you could literally go to the front desk in the in whatever studio you worked at and get fucking pills. They would give you yeah. whatever the fuck you needed to stay awake and they would give you whatever you needed to go to sleep. And yeah, they, I mean, you didn't need a prescription. Well, a lot of folks ended up having their addiction. Um, Judy Garland. Oh, there you go. I mean, yep, obviously. Yep, and Judy Garland was a uh, was another one who Ralph Greenson was a fucking psychiatrist for, believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah, when I saw that somebody had suggested that that it was Judy Garland, I was like, ah, good guess. That's a that's great a very good guess. That, that is. He a- takes that. 
Well, I, I went okay, through I went through and just I liked everybody's. I was like, I'm just gonna hit the like button on all of them just to throw them all off. And usually I'll just go in and comment. I'll be like, I don't know, I don't remember. And then somebody will be like, I know you got a good memory, dude. Don't bullshit me. I'm like, I can't remember. I don't remember. I, but, I, I, don't, I don't remember what I'm recording remember. this week. I'm I don't sorry. even know. I don't even know. <laughs> I got like three cases going on in my head right now. I don't even know. Okay, uh, so back to what you okay, back to the JFK thing. There is some differences in opinion on whether or not they had met before he was actually president or had met afterward. Personally, mm -hmm. I had read more for afterward in like 6061 and that was corroborated by people who knew GFK and people who knew Marilyn Monroe. And like you had mm -hmm. said, they had actually been caught one time that is confirmed at Bean Crosby's. Um, and that would have been the Palm Springs um, affair, which, you know, is it's pretty documented, I guess you could say. You know, it's not the greatest word for it, but it pretty much is. There's a lot of fucking witnesses, a lot of people that were there, a lot of people that confirmed it. But personally, I'm not 100% sold on JFK because yeah. I am more sold on Robert F. Kennedy. Yes. Because I guess there was another occasion where JFK had had Robert F. Kennedy go try to talk to her. Which he, I don't really understand why no. he would have his brother try to talk to him, since him to someone if, and follow me for just a second, if it was involving more of a JFK type issue. Yeah. Because, like, if... If I were to go to you and say, dude, you got to talk some sense to this girl. She's being fucking crazy. She's going off on a tangent. She's threatening our careers. It would be more effective if I went and talked to her and said, look, I'm going to try to talk you down. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do. Yes. This and that. When you have a third party involved, they can't be as effective. Yeah. It's just not going to work as well. So to me... Coupled with the fact that Marilyn Monroe's friends or close associates, I'm, you know, it's both, say that it wasn't as serious for her as the sensationalized media has, has made it out to be. I, I'm with you. I, I really yeah. think that RFK was more of a central figure yeah. um, in whatever capacity. And, and we can get into that more because he's involved in more than one. Yes, and, and that, I guess... We can tie Robert F. Kennedy kind of into the mafia theory. Yeah. Like me and you were discussing earlier, how it goes is JFK get elected president. He needed to win Illinois. So Joe Kennedy Sr. goes to Illinois and sets up a meeting with Sam Giancana of the mafia. For those of you who are unfamiliar with who Sam Giancana was. At the time, he was the boss of bosses. He was the leader of the American Mafia at that point in time. Now, how it goes is that in order to win Illinois, they had to win Chicago. So Joe Kennedy Sr. goes and sets up, a, sets up a, an appointment with Sam Giancana. Now, 
Joe Kennedy Sr. is known to have been associated with very nefarious characters throughout his career because, like I had said earlier, not going to get too deep into it, but Joe Kennedy was a fucking straight-up criminal. That is how he made his fortune. All right, so he goes to Chicago. He sets up a fucking meeting with Sam Giancana, and he agrees that if Sam Giancana helps John Kennedy win Illinois, which would be Chicago, that he would ensure that pressure was taken off of the American Mafia as a whole. Now, what happens is, is JFK gets elected. He ended up winning Illinois because of Chicago. So, he goes in. The first thing he does is he hires Bobby Kennedy as Attorney General. The first thing Bobby Kennedy does is starts going after the fucking mob. Literally, first fucking thing he does. Now... With this comes in with the with the Teamsters unions, with Jimmy Hoffa. Now, that's another one of those off-branched-off theories because Jimmy Hoffa fucking hated Bobby Kennedy. Anybody related anywhere to the mafia fucking hated Bobby Kennedy. So, one of the side theories that ties into Robert F. Kennedy is that Jimmy Hoffa had a shitload of wiretaps placed in... Marilyn Monroe's house and on and it had her phone tapped because he was looking for any kind of fucking dirt that he could use against the Kennedys because he knew that she was somehow involved with John Kennedy or Robert Kennedy either fucking one he didn't care he just needed that amount of dirt that also ties into fucking J. Edgar Hoover J. Edgar Hoover was a notorious for fucking wiretapping every fucking buddy in the goddamn country, who had any kind of clout whatsoever because he literally blackmailed fucking everybody. And this was, Marilyn Monroe was one of these people. Now, it was discovered, apparently, this is totally unconfirmed, um, I think it was two or three years ago that there were wiretapped conversations of Marilyn Monroe with the fucking Kennedys. I have not heard these fucking conversations but supposedly there are government documents that state that she was fucking wiretapped. Some of these documents included signatures from J. Edgar Hoover himself saying, wiretap this chick, we're going to get as much dirt on the Kennedys as we fucking can. So how this comes into play, even though I branched off on like a 10 minute side note, but this is all relevant. It's all very, very relevant. How this comes into play is that Robert F. Kennedy was also having an affair with Marilyn Monroe. Now, as it's supposedly as it's stated, Robert F. Kennedy told her that he was going to leave his wife for her. And obviously he didn't fucking go through with it. He didn't do it because she was pretty much a has-been in some people's opinions at this fucking point. Everybody pretty much fucking used her, unfortunately, and that is not excluding the fucking Kennedys. Because at the end of the day, let's be fucking real. Every woman wanted to be Marilyn Monroe. Every man wanted to be with her. It didn't matter if you were 25 or fucking 75. If you were with Marilyn Monroe, you were fucking on it. You know what I mean? And That's still awesome, It does. It does, dude, because I'll tell you right now. Oh, man, she was so fucking sexy. But anyway, that's a side note. Anyway, so Robert F. Kennedy 
basically is in the same boat as JFK. If she fucking comes forth with this press conference, which she has been very vocal about in the last week of her life, granted she might have been on a bender on some medications, some pills, some barbiturates, or she might have been maybe slightly losing her fucking mind a little bit. We don't know. But she was very, very, very vocal about having this press conference the following Monday if JFK didn't return her fucking phone calls or if Robert F. Kennedy didn't fucking start taking the steps to leave his fucking wife. We don't exactly know the fucking truth. But the theory goes that Robert F. Kennedy got a hold of Sam Giancana himself. The one man that he was after more than anybody in the fucking world. And he says, hey, I'll make you a deal. If you have this chick taken care of, then I will personally make sure that I take heat off you. I will not pursue you guys any further. And to be honest with you, Marilyn was associated with Sam Giancana. They had had, they had known each other, they had partied together at fucking Frank Sinatra's place. You know what I'm saying? And then, was it Cal... What was that fucking resort? It was. It's right on the border of California and Nevada, and I want to say it's... But anyway, they had been at a party together there, and she had actually been extremely vocal at that party about this press conference that she was going to hold the following Monday about exposing the Kennedys and all these fucking secrets that both the Kennedys had been telling her about Bay of Pigs, about the Mafia, about the plot to kill Fidel Castro, about the Cuban fucking missile crisis. She had written all this shit down in her Little Red Diary, which, to this day, has never been fucking found. Nobody knows what happened to it. That's where Peter Lawford comes into play a little bit later. Also, can I just add real quick no, that please, go ahead. Um, the, the FBI has neither confirmed nor denied the existence of said diary. Exactly. So that to me kind of kind of threw up a red flag because typically if there's all this talk swirling around this one thing, they'll either say that's not true, drop it, or we can't say, which typically means something is up. That was that was one thing that I found that I was Scratching my head in a ring on. There's something to that. There's yeah. something fishy going on. There's that. something going on right there. No, I agree yeah. with you 100%. So, basically, Robert F. Kennedy brings this deal to the table for Sam Giancana. Now, what they say happened is one mobster goes over there who had also some affiliation with Marilyn Monroe. He basically, when he leaves, he leaves the door unlocked. Five mobsters go in the house. They chloroform her. And they intentionally overdose her by way of enema. But that basically is the Robert F. Kennedy theory. Now, from the police report, actually, it wasn't even a report. I don't even think he was allowed to report it, was he? Was Franklin allowed to report that suspected drunk driver being Peter Lawford going 80 fucking miles an hour? It was just him. Okay. It's just him. Detective Franklin was was on record saying that, um, and I believe it was 
82 or 3. Yeah, yeah. And there's no official report as if there was a real stop made. Okay. So... You can take that as you. It, it's as just his word, but he was he was a well-respected detective um, from, he, from what I've gathered. So that, I'm no, the same here. Same here, and same thing with the first, you know, the first uh, Jack Clemens, the first cop on the scene. He was a 15-year vet, very well-respected police officer, and yeah. when the one of the first things he fucking initially thinks is this is a stage fucking death scene. But, yeah, when someone when someone with that much experience can go in and and look around and make that assessment. snap judgment, yeah, yeah, and go, yeah, no, that that's exactly what this is. I mean, it's not case closed, but I've seen a million of these, and that's exactly what I see. Yeah. So to me, that that holds a lot of weight for sure. Yeah. And um, going back to that, I know that you and Shane are going to talk about this some more or maybe already have. Anyway, but going back to the, the mafia thing, by way of Enema, and I also read this suppository thing, but it doesn't really matter. What I found interesting is that they were um, saying, and this is all from um, the book Double Cross, um, mm-hmm. which is written by one of the gene cons. So yep. I kind of hold some weight with that. Definitely. But the, the chemist that put together this enema or suppository, whatever it was, um, was rumored heavily by Giancana to be the same person that put together all of stuff for Castro. I so did. I thought that that was kind of interesting when you had touched on Fidel Castro for that to kind of turn back around yeah. and go on both sides. Yeah, so. it definitely adds up, and and you know, in yeah. in somebody who writes a book as a Giancana, because I know Sam Giancana's daughter is very vocal about what her father was involved with, because it will be a future episode. Sam Giancana's murder is still unsolved, right? Um, and that that actually will be a future episode. He had a lot of supposed ties to the CIA, to the federal government, and. There's a lot of stuff going on there for sure, but yeah, you know, and yeah. I guess I guess that does kind of tie the CIA into it a little bit because what she was going to hold this press conference about was not only the Kennedys but a lot of the shit the Kennedys told her about, yes. which were national. Yeah. Fucking... yeah, it wasn't just solely to to shoot them down for yeah. sure. Yeah, and that was. I mean, she was literally going to spill her fucking guts and just lay it all out on the line. And whether she was in her right mind when she said that, we can't fucking be sure. But the fact that this little red fucking diary has never fucking turned up and it is stated by a few people that she literally wrote down a lot of shit in this fucking diary. And Which is really bad because that could have been what did her in. Yeah, for real. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, like you said, she's smarter than people give her credit for. But on the other side of that token, her wits could have possibly gotten her killed. Exactly, and that yeah. would you know tie in the CIA to that because there are some that speculate, oh, well, it was a CIA hit, you know? Yeah. Personally, yeah. I don't believe the mafia hit because I don't see five mobsters going in there and fucking doing an enema on her 
I could see one mobster yeah. going in and giving her two shots behind the fucking ear with a twenty-two case closed. Another unsolved murder in fucking L.A. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, just like, you know, fucking Bugsy Siegel, dude. I mean, that, that case technically is still unsolved. That's straight up fucking mafia hit right there, man. I mean, the dude... Yeah, and they have a certain way of of taking care of people. Exactly. And medically, they're, they're not going to dabble in that. That's No. no. So, just a blanket from me. <laughs> So, all in all, Brooke, after all we said, what do you think happened and why? I really think that RFK had something to do with it. Um, There were two different things that, and I'll be brief on this, but um, there were two different things that RFK had to do with, um, depending on what you want to believe. Um, The first one was that RFK staged the suicide. Um, and with that, what, what I found was that, um, after RFK broke off the affair, she threatened to go public, um, which we've already touched on. There were certain things that she was going to go public with that being one of them. And so RFK and his brother-in-law, Peter Lawford, mm-hmm. again, again. Um, there are several, several names that just keep coming up. Uh, yeah. Um, so, as we know that Peter Lawford was married to the Kennedy brothers' sister, Patricia. Um, so, anyway, the Peter Lawford and um, RFK were there, and they were trying to get her drunk because, and, you know, supplied her with pills because they knew that she had a problem. She obeyed, and they tried to get her to the emergency room, and she died in the ambulance. Now, this is just a theory um, and it's one of two that seem fairly viable to me because there have been celebrity deaths after Marilyn Monroe that kind of seem a little bit similar and fishy. Um, so since she died in the ambulance, they went back to her home and staged all of this to make it look like she died at home. Mm-hmm. So to me, that kind of seems feasible. Um, it doesn't seem outside of the realm, but it also doesn't seem like it's the most plausible. And the one thing that I would say would be the very most plausible would be the RFK theory involving Peter Lawford and also um, Greenson. And that would be um, kind of a a collective effort of sorts. Um, uh, Some say that um, Dr. Greenson screwed up and gave her a larger dose of medication, like a larger prescription, and she OD'd, and he was trying to cover her ass. And then RFK went over to the house and helped him because mm-hmm. he was already on his way over there. Pretty much. Um, but also another reason was that she was going to threaten to break off the affair, and so he flew from San Francisco and got it done. So... I know that RFK was involved. Like, for me, RFK was involved. One thing that I think that pretty much everyone can agree on, and there's going to be a few commenters that say, no, it was a suicide. It just doesn't add up to be a suicide. So that's my final say, is that RFK was involved, and that I think that he probably at least helped stage a suicide, if not cause the death. all of this. Yeah. Yeah. I personally... Emma, right there with you. The timelines of Eunice Murray, Ralph Greenson, 
other people mm-hmm. who were at the scene and involved witnesses to the scene, it shit doesn't add up. And if it's a simple suicide, mm-hmm. it should add up. It should yeah, and, all be corrupt. And why are you going to be in San Francisco? You're going to fly into L.A. and not let anybody know, mm-hmm. lie about your whereabouts, yep. have all of these conflicting reports, and then, what is it, almost 10 years later, someone, no, it was exactly 10 years later, in 72, all these people come back and go, oh, no, you know, he really was here. Why would you lie about that to begin yeah. with if there wasn't something that was going on that you were having to have extra time to cover up? You had 10 years to cover yeah, that up. Exactly. I mean, well, he didn't have 10 years. All in all, that took a morbid turn. <laughs> so um, to me, why lie about something that you have nothing to hide? That is exactly right. He didn't, like you had stated, he didn't get brought into the picture until, I believe, 1972 when they reinvestigated the case. Granted, I don't think they took into consideration, like, a lot of other things, especially Eunice Murray. But, no, I agree with you 110%. I am definitely on board. And, um, like I said, I won't state, like, my full thoughts and theory on it until towards the end of the the actual episode, but just in general, what does Marilyn Monroe mean to you? As somebody who has looked into her life and all that stuff, what are your thoughts and personal opinions on Marilyn Monroe, and what, what does she mean to you? Well, um, first of all, it's just a complete story of perseverance um with with all of the things just completely thrown on top of her one thing after another after another and it was just that i mean Mm -hmm. if you look at her timeline of her life all the way from birth until death it was literally from year to year there was a new instance of what the hell has my life become it just to me that just shows the the will that she had, which is absolutely inspiring because after all of the shit that she went through, she endured, she overcame, um, that's just awe-inspiring because like you and I had discussed, a lot of those things would have brought us to the brink and over the edge. I mean, agreed. a long damn time before it happened Yeah, because anyone that, you know, knows her story or that listens to your episode will agree just what the hell did she ever do to anybody to deserve that kind of karma? I mean, yeah. it's just too much. Um, but additionally, she was just a great businesswoman, a very tenacious person. Um, and yeah. that just speaks volumes. I think, um, with, with all of the things that went on in her life, um, she had, she had the ambition and the, gusto really with all of her self-consciousness i mean she was absolutely very hard on herself and very down on herself a lot of the time but she pretty much had the will and the guts to say screw you i'm doing it yep and i'm gonna make it work and i'm gonna make you listen to me you know with with having her own studio after she couldn't get parts that she wanted she said screw you I'll do it myself. I'll make my own parts. I'll Fuck do what yeah. I want. And then, you know, going to the actor's studio before doing that, she's looking at all these drama 
actor. She's been doing comedy and the ditzy blonde thing for so long and saying they're so much better than me. They're, they're real actors and, you know, having the triumph to go, you know what, I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to get it done. You know, I'm going to take notes. And if this is what I want to do, this is how I'm going to do it. And that's just really very, very inspiring to me. Um, just one of those go-getter type people. And it's kind of cliche to say that phrase, but that's really what happened. Brooke, thank you very much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. And I hope you had fun. I did. All right. Well, we'll figure out an episode and get you back on here. I mean, you'll do a full length one ourselves. Cool. Yes, it does. All right. Well, thanks. We'll talk to you later. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. And we are back. Shane, did you have anything to add after uh, my first batch of facts and uh, me and Brooks touching base on some theories there, man? Yeah, I'll add some things. So anytime I look at a case and I'm wondering if it could be suicide, there's certain call marks that I'm looking for. Um, typically, the psychology of someone that commits suicide, there are certain things that fall into place. And if, those, if, if I find those things happening, then that's more likely to push me to believe that this could be a possible suicide. Um, from the things that you've, you've mentioned as well, so the ex-stepson uh, spoke to Marilyn, and he reported that she had high spirits, and that was, sh- that was a little bit before her death that day. And later on, someone else spoke to her and said that she felt, dis- or she sounded distraught. This technically would uh, point towards suicide, because a lot of times what you'll find when someone reaches that point is that they have this moment where they feel like they're going to do this. If, if it's a pre-planned thing, they're going to commit suicide. Sometimes you'll find this thing where suddenly all their worries have gone and they'll be a little happy. And it's, it's an odd thing for a normal person to, to witness or to, to hear, but it's something that is known. It, it, it can happen. Someone can be a little bit more cheerful, cheerful before mm-hmm. suicide just because they've already made the decision their end goal is near. They're no longer worried about everything else that's on their plate. Something that kind of catches me a little off guard, though, with that theory is she's later being reported as distraught. And this is more closer to the time when she when she's dead. That that then something clicked, something happened between that first phone call and the second phone call to make her feel distraught. That kind of throws up red flags at that point, just because it's no longer falling in with that within the theory of this is a pre-planned thing at this point something may have clicked and it that could have mm-hmm. led her to commit suicide that's definitely possible but i feel like at that point um so an outside force intervened the thing to remember is marilyn i don't believe she had any financial problems going on at the time so it's i don't see that as being the cause when i was looking over the case what I typically do working any case is I create a web and the web I connect to different people or different organizations that someone's involved in with Marilyn. I could create a web all day and have little offsets of each individual web. And ultimately when I look at this entire web, it's just, there's just so much stuff that, any one of those offsets of the web could could have been responsible mm-hmm. or someone wanted her dead. 
whether it be the CIA, the Kennedys, people of her past. There's just so many, so many people. And I don't want to go too far into into this, but you had mentioned the CIA and stuff. And definitely I know a little bit about the the Bay of Pigs. And so I want to touch base on that just really quickly. So this whole idea of Bay of Pigs, it's definitely possible that this is the event that could have led to Marilyn's murder if she had been murdered. That event really upset the CIA, the U.S. as a total nation, as well as the Kennedys. It made everyone of those three people or those three entities embarrassed and made them all look like fools. And to give you a kind of a short little history lesson on what the Bay of Pigs is, the Bay of Pigs was, it was an invasion attempt, attempt in 1961, and that was held by the CIA. They were the major parties there involved. Their goal was to overthrow Fidel Castro in Cuba. He had just become, you know, he just came to power and they no longer, they, they saw it as a huge threat. It was so close to the U.S. mainland. They wanted it gone. So they were in the background, you know, doing what the CIA does, being a little sneaky. Um, so they wanted to overthrow him. However, there, it didn't end well, to, to, be, to be blunt. The CIA and the U.S. both looked horrible, as well as the Kennedys. To explain kind of what happened, Cuba had received advance, advance notice that this was going to happen, and they, they knew it through the Soviet Union. And as Justin already touched base on, it was kind of thought, believed, that maybe Marilyn was sneaking information over to them. Maybe she was a spy. So. I can see that this entire event could have led to two huge entities being pissed off at Marilyn because they probably, you know, if, if anyone could have known this information, it probably would have been Marilyn because she was, she had an affair with both Kennedy brothers who, uh, John Kennedy was the one that, that pushed the final approval for this, uh, event. But of course the CIA is the one that was organi organizing it. So they both could have gotten really upset about it. And we know that someone leaked it because U.S. papers prior to this event happening started reporting on what they believed was a, was a future invasion that was going to be happening in Cuba. And we now know that the Soviet Union were the ones that gave Cuba the advance notice. And this just goes to show you how much they knew about the invasion when the forces got to the bay, there was a fog, a fog man that flashed a directional beacon directly at this invading force. So that goes to show you how much uh, the person or the people who, who could have leaked this information, how much exactly they knew. Justin also touched base on Marilyn's place being bugged. Later after her death, I don't believe that it was known immediately that her place was bugged. Yep. It may have been thrown out there as any conspiracy theory has, but later on after her death, they were doing a remodeling of the house and they actually found where it was all bugged up. And it was, I mean, it wasn't just one little room that had a bug. It was completely wired in and out. So knowing that I'm really surprised that if, if Marilyn was killed by one of those people, whether, whether it be the CIA, the Kennedys, whatever, if it was an official thing where she was leaking information, I would think the charges would have been brought against her because that it, it, that would only make sense. 
But you have to think if she had this red diary of information and it was damaging to the Kennedys, damaging to the U.S., would they have wanted to press charges against her and having her leak all of that information? So those are all things that pop in my head that I wanted to share before we go any further. You can go ahead and go start again if you want. Start the engine. No, I'm glad you touched base on the uh, the remodeling of the house because that right there is a very interesting fact that, that shows a lot of credibility to... Otash, Fred Otash's accounts of what he heard happen that night. Mm-hmm. And do you know if the red diary was ever found? No, it wasn't. There's two I, stories that I heard. Um, Peter Lawford, who we are going to find out is involved at the crime scene, uh, obviously not on the LAPD report. There is a story that he had gone and looked for it, couldn't find it, gone back later, actually found it took it. Nobody's ever seen it since. There's also um, another story about how it was collected with her personal belongings and sent to the coroner's office um, where it was logged in. And uh, by the time the autopsy was done, the book was missing and has never been seen since. So it would be truly interesting to, to know, but yeah, the whereabouts of this, uh, you know, Diary of Secrets, a little red diary, uh, is still unknown. Nobody knows what the fuck happened to this thing, which is interesting all in itself. But um, Fred Otash, this is pretty much what he says in his early 90s interview when all of this started coming to light more. Now, like I said, he talks about Robert F. Kennedy being over at the house. There are times for this, which I will correlate timelines here a little bit afterward basically what he goes on to say he says they have a violent argument now this is about him not leaving his wife and he wants this diary he knows about it everybody knows about it she's been threatening to hold this press conference for you know a month now actually not even a month actually it'd been what about a week and a half two weeks Um, And she was going to do it that following Monday. Now, he wants this diary because he knows that it would pretty much make him and his brother look like total shit. There would probably not be many chances for political office in the future if some of this shit came out, let alone charges of probably treason, to be perfectly honest with you. Now, the Kennedys were a huge, huge, powerful, powerful family. Fuck, they still are. You know what I mean? I mean, look a little Teddy Kennedy, you know, back when he fucking drove his car off of that bridge, killed that chick. You know what I mean? He was fine. Left her to drown, you know, but um, she wouldn't tell him where it was. She she said, fuck it. And she started getting pretty violent. Now, let, now keep in mind, this is what Fred Otash heard on the wiretaps. Now, she started getting pretty violent. She would not tell him where the damn diary was. So he tells these two guys who he showed up with to sedate her. Now, who he showed up with, I believe they were off-duty cops by the names of James O'Hearn and Archie Case. Now, these are two guys who were accompanying uh, Bobby Kennedy when he was over there. Now, he was worried about the noise because she was starting to get extremely violent, and he tells the two guys to sedate her. So what happens is 
The cops throw her on the bed, and Bobby Kennedy puts a pillow over her face to quiet her down. Now, this is supposedly just before 10 p.m. Now, he says he can be heard saying, give her something to calm her down. They take a needle out of uh, the cop's medical bag. They shoot her in the jugular vein and behind both knees with Nebutal. So, when she's asleep, they're looking, Bobby Kennedy's looking everywhere for this little red diary. He couldn't find shit, so she ends up coming back too, and she ends up fighting with them again. Well, what happens is Bobby Kennedy tells the two cops to hold her down, give her a drug-laced enema, which would include 17 chlorohydrates, which are broken down pills, and then 13 to 19 nebutol. Remember, this didn't kill her. This just knocked her out. All right. Now, after all this, mind you, uh, Eunice Murray and Norman Jeffries, who was also there, Norman Jeffries being the uh, handyman, he was also Eunice Murray's son-in-law. They were both there. Now, when Robert F. Kennedy got there, they got kicked out and got told to go over to the neighbor's house. Now, the neighbor's house that they went to was a woman named um, Mary Goody Kuntz Barnes. And uh, she ended up dying in 1964, so she was never re-interviewed. Now, she was never identified at the scene um, to the first cop on the scene. In a later interview, she is stated as saying, I've seen Bobby Kennedy go into that house at least a dozen times. That's definitely who that was. I don't know who the other two men were. So there's pretty much confirmation that there were two men with Bobby Kennedy there. Now, after the cops leave, Eunice Murray and Norman Jeffries go back. They find Marilyn Monroe in distress. Now, the thing that, that you also got to keep in mind is Marilyn Monroe is not in her main house at this point in time. When she woke up after being sedated, she heard noises in back in her back house, like a little guest house in the back. And that's where she went on to fight more with uh, Robert Kennedy that second time around, okay? What happens is she finds Marilyn Monroe in distress when she comes back into the house. And what she does is she calls Schaefer Ambulance. Now, there are 14 people who remember when this call came in. The ambulance drivers that arrive to the scene are James Hall and Murray Leibowitz. They show up, and they are let in by... Marilyn Monroe's publicist, Pat Newcomb. Now, they asked what's wrong. Pat says, we think she, I think she took some pills. First thing Hall does is he goes up and smells her mouth. There's no odor of drugs, so he knows that they wouldn't have possibly been taken orally. And he can't really see any injection marks. And the simple fact that if she would have taken that many pills at this point in time... She would have died before the ambulance even got there. Now, James Hall does say in a later interview that when he got there, all the sheets were removed from the bed. The only reason that I could think of is to remove sheets is if they might have been soiled. Maybe there was some, you know, fecal matter of some sort, maybe from an enema. You know, just throwing that out there, but he does state that he thought it was odd that there were absolutely no sheets on the bed when he got there. Eunice Murray and uh, Norman Jeffries, when they found her, she was face down. And that's what they said a hundred times over in interviews. 
when James Hall got there, the very first ambulance driver there, he says she was face up, which means that somebody had moved her body or purposely put her face down to make the postmortem lividity go to the front of her body. Now, the reason they would do this, because the ambulance drivers at this point in time are trying to save her life. Now, this is probably right around, I believe, 11 o'clock to 1130. I think it's actually, I think it's more between 11 and 1115 p.m. Now, it should be stated that the official police report of the cops first getting called, as I had stated earlier, was fairly early. It was like, uh, what, 425 in the morning, I believe, is when they got the initial phone call. Arthur Jacobs, on the other hand, who was involved with press relations, uh, him and his wife, Natalie Jacobs, were at the Hollywood Ball concert, and she specifically remembers him getting that phone call about Marilyn Monroe having that overdose, and he got this call at between 10 and 10.30 p.m. that night. She specifically remembers because, well, you're not going to forget something like that. Now, also a little bit later... Abe Landau, who is a neighbor, her next door neighbor. Now, this is at 1 a.m. This is a little bit, you know, past the point of where we're at. But he came home at 1 a.m. and remembers specifically seeing a shitload of cars and thought it was really, really odd. Her doctor, Hyman Engelberg, says that his alarm was raised and he was notified at between 11 p.m. and 12 a.m. So this is all happening roughly between 12 to 1 a.m., all this hustle and bustle is going on. Everybody's getting notified about what's going on. So basically what they're doing is at this point in time, like I said, this is right around 11, 11, 15, 11, 30, somewhere around there. We're not exactly sure. They specifically said that they can save her. They said, we need to go to the hospital right now. We can save her. But all of a sudden they said, as they're, they have the, uh, the resuscitator, uh, James Hall specifically said it was working. It was keeping her alive in order for them to get to the hospital to save her. He says a guy shows up. Now, he didn't know who this guy was at first. But he says uh, this guy walks in the room. And he says, I'm her doctor. And he walks over and he has a doctor bag with him. He looks at her and says, give her a positive, give her positive pressure. So Hall takes off the resuscitator, and this doctor pulls out a hypodermic syringe with a heart needle already attached, which is anywhere probably about 10 inches long or so, and he fills it with a brownish fluid, which we do know is not adrenaline, and he puts it into her chest and between a couple of her ribs, and he pushes it all the way into her heart. Soon after that, within a few moments, that's when Marilyn Monroe actually died. Now, where did he get this back? Who was this doctor? Supposedly, from later interviews, he was given this bag by one of the two cops that was with Bobby Kennedy. Because supposedly, that car that Bobby Kennedy was in with the two cops was still outside. Now, this guy was later identified, this doctor, as being Ralph Greenson. Now, how did they do this? The two ambulance drivers didn't know who they was. They were shown pictures of all the people that were involved, whether it was distantly involved with it or 
directly involved with it. And he picked Ralph Greenson out of a lineup of all these people. So he was the doctor who officially put that needle in her heart. As this is going on, Peter Lawford, who was the Kennedy's brother-in-law, who was friends with Marilyn Monroe, who was supposed to technically have dinner with her that night, and a cop named Sergeant Martin Ionown, I hope I said his last name right, um, they go and they enter the guest cottage. What happens after that, obviously we're not too sure about, but... That's pretty much your timeline up until about 1 a.m. of events. Now, there are some other side facts. Supposedly, a lot of people asked Ralph Greenson, how's Ralph Greenson involved? What does he have to fucking, you know, lose by Marilyn Monroe fucking releasing this little diary of secrets? Well, apparently, at one point in time, Bobby Kennedy had lied to him. He had told him that Marilyn Monroe was going to blackmail the shit out of him, and he was one of the people that was going to be revealed at this big tell-all press conference. He was having an affair with Marilyn Monroe. She lived with him at one point in time, and this is her fucking psychiatrist. This is her doctor. He's basically taking advantage of her like crazy. This would have ruined his entire family's reputation. He would have lost his license, never worked again. He literally would have lost everything. And he was the psychiatrist of the stars in Hollywood. He literally would have lost everything. A lot of other people are like, well, if, you know, he's only a psychiatrist, why is the first, why is he the very first person that Eunice Murray calls when, um, you know, when she's fucked up, when they find her in distress. Well, this was just natural. This was just procedure. Ralph was always the very first person that was always called when something was going on, whether she was, you know, having a little fit, you know, whether she was fucked up or something, whether she was stupid drunk. He was the very first person that Eunice Murray was instructed to call. So that is why he was called. A little side fact, like um, me and Brooke had touched base on, uh, Peter Lawford. He was pulled over at 12.10 a.m. by Detective Lynn Franklin. Now, Detective Lynn Franklin didn't know about Marilyn Monroe at the time. He had, he had been out on patrol, didn't really hear anything about it. But they were pulled over on Olympic and Robertson Boulevard, which is literally seven miles away from Marilyn Monroe's house. This was at 12.10 a.m. This is 20 minutes after... You know, Greenson had given her this needle injection. He was pulled over doing 80 miles an hour, and Peter Lawford was, of course, drunk. Now, Lynn Franklin actually described Peter Lawford as being very, very shaken, very anxious. And, of course, as we know, Peter Lawford was driving. Greenson was in the passenger seat, and in the back seat was Bobby Kennedy. You know, maybe people not from America are saying... You know, how, how does he know his body? Everybody knew who the fuck Bobby Kennedy was. Everybody knew who everybody, every Kennedy was at this point in time. They still do. You could show a fucking 12-year-old a picture of JFK and they know who he is, you know, let alone Bobby Kennedy. So that's pretty much the fucked up timeline of events as said by witnesses in later interviews and the private investigator who had listened to the wiretaps of the house that they were tapping all the fucking time. So I guess, I mean, obviously with this knowledge and the fact that like you had brought up and I'm so glad you did before I did about her house being remodeled and all those fucking bugs being found. 
That says a lot right there. Now, I suppose, you know, there's only a few theories that we can concoct. First of all, I don't want to say my opinion, but obviously we'll start, I guess, with the conspiracy theories about her knowledge of UFOs because of Jack Kennedy having visited separate, you know, Air Force bases with UFOs and aliens and all this shit. Don't get me wrong. I am a firm believer in the fact that we are not the only intelligent people or intelligent species in the fucking universe. Personally, I think if if you think that, that's kind of sad because as a human race, we're all pretty fucking stupid most of the time. So I guess I'm just going to throw that right out the window. But when it comes to the fact that the CIA did not deny the authenticity of the documents relating to that memo, basically didn't deny the authenticity of the memo um, stating that the CIA and FBI were very aware that she was getting ready to hold a tell-all press conference. You know, I'm not going to base it all on that fact because there's a lot of corroborating eyewitnesses. Their timeline literally makes more fucking sense than anybody else. And not to mention when Jack Clemens um, got there, he says, you know, Eunice Murray's washing the fucking sheets, which would correlate with James Hall saying that there were no sheets on the bed. Why would she be washing the seat sheets? The only thing that makes sense is a fucking enema. You know what I mean? Her fucking, there was no drug residue in her fucking colon. Her colon was discolored, and that really didn't have, I don't want to say anything to do with her death or the time of death because of the fact she was on a lot of medication that caused constipation. She had a lot of enemas, you know, at least a few a week. You know, she used fucking enemas as a dietary supplement. So, I mean, naturally, if you have constipation problems, your colon's probably going to look a little fucked up, I would like to assume. You know what I mean? I guess the fact of the body being overturned and moved, the first cop on the scene, you know, after 4 a.m., he even asked, he's like, why did it take you guys so long to call the cops? You know, and none of the ambulance shit is in the police report anywhere. It's just basically Ralph Greenson, Eunice Murray's story. I mean, what kind of person, you know, commits suicide and then neatly places all the fucking bottles back on the nightstand, chews them up and eats them, but doesn't swallow them apparently because there's no residue left in her stomach. None absolutely whatsoever. There's no fucking odor of pills in her mouth. You know, Brooke had actually mentioned a very good, you know, psychology of suicide, I guess you could say. And I'm no psychologist, but usually when women do commit suicide, they try to look their best. It's, you know, kind of a vanity thing. And I mean, it's not, I don't want to say proven fact, but it kind of is, is, you know, documented. There's studies and shit, you know, there's statistics. So why would she be face down with a fucking phone in her hand? You know, who is she talking to? Who did she call? Why did they, why would they put the phone in her hand? You know, you have Peter Lawford says when he talked to her, she sound fucking slurred. You know, Ralph Greenson called back a little bit later after he had left. She, he said she sounded slurred. But within 10 minutes, Joe DiMaggio Jr. talked to her. He said she sounded very fine and upbeat and was happy to be talking to him. This is all within like a half an hour. So given all that information, eyewitness accounts that totally corroborate with each other. I mean, next door neighbors, 
the wiretapping information. I'm sure they do have transcripts, but we sure as fuck ain't going to ever see them. I mean, personally, to me, I think there are a lot of people that wanted her dead for very good reason. Because she was literally about to ruin a political family. But I think that the, the one person that had the most to lose was Bobby Kennedy. And I think by him lying to Ralph Greenson and telling him that she was going to go public with his affair too, not just him and him and John, uh, you know, fucking her on a daily basis or whatever. I think he pretty much conned him into doing the, the dirty work, blackmailed him into doing the dirty work. I think the fact that if, if Lynn Franklin's account is true, I think, um, you know, that is the timeline. The timeline matches up better than the official LAPD police report. I mean, it makes more sense to me that that Bobby Kennedy literally put Ralph Greenson up to it, you know, had her killed. And of course, Peter Lawford was involved. And how do you explain Thomas Noguchi going from a deputy coroner to chief coroner of L.A. County within five fucking years? And literally the only, probably the only death certificate or, you know, coroner's report that you'll see with probable suicide on it. You know, what the fuck is that? Kind of just mentioned this. Her death was ruled a probable suicide, but it's important to also know that the toxicology report was only taken from her liver. Um, you've mentioned Thomas Noguchi several times. As, you've, as you mentioned, he was the deputy coroner. and. It's also important to know that when he tried to access her or her other organs, that that was when he was informed that they were all destroyed. So the toxicology tests were only done on her yeah, liver. Yeah, I forgot about that. Um, looking at the case, I don't see how it's possible to drink or to, to take in 50 pills. Again, these are the case pills, so they're not tiny. They're rather good size supposedly taken 50 of them without any type of water or anything. I don't see how you could take all those without gagging it up. I, I think that's an important, important thing to take yeah. away. Also, it's not unknown that her family, there's, there's, there's history of mental illness within her family. Um, yeah. And she has a very a lot. shaky past. You know, a lot of people have done her wrong. Her her background is very unstable. So there is there is evidence of, you know, personal mm -hmm. mental illness as well with within her. But mm -hmm. but saying even that, if she were to have committed suicide for for whatever reason, I don't see her doing it without leaving a, any type of suicide note. She had her phone with her. So in in my theory, if mm -hmm. I were to go to the Sears, the suicide theory, she ha she would have had to have called someone, and that would have had to have been the moment of of closure for her. And it, it's shady because no one comes forward and says, "Yes, I was on the phone," and yes, after that moment, you know, this is the mm -hmm. event that clicked. Well, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I had totally forgot to mention the story goes with the phone in her hand is that. She had called Ralph Greenson at that time and said, say goodbye to the president for me and say goodbye to yourself as well. And then she died. But here's the deal. Ralph Greenson didn't say this until several years later. 
And at that point in time, Ralph Greenson was on a fuckload of cocaine. He was a very known cocaine user and having a lot of personal problems himself. And it's pretty widely acknowledged that he had made this up. So that's the story that he gives, but I don't believe that bullshit for a second, personally. If I had to put a label on it, I always allow the evidence to point me in a direction. And I think that the direction that it pointed me into was a definite uh, murder that someone tried covering up as a suicide. As I, as I mentioned, I have a web of different offsets of people and places. And when you look at her and her past and the people she surrounded herself with, it seems like she may have been a little naive in terms of she probably felt that at least in the beginning when when her when her stardom was coming around she probably more felt that there is no bad in terms of people always had her best interests in mind so you can you can kind of see as her life goes on that all these shady characters and shady events start coming up people start using her people see her as uh this beauty and they want to become close to her. And she's so personable that I think that she allows most of the people that want to be close to her. And that in, in a way, I think that ultimately allowed a breakdown within herself. So there's so many things that point to, to, to her being killed. I mean, you just laid it all out in 90 minutes, you know, about everything. And so I'm really curious to see if people think that this is all BS and that she actually did commit suicide. I know one important thing that I think about as I was listening to you talk and hearing all the facts and and theories again is oftentimes we don't want to think that people who are in power or people who are put in power could not have our best interests at heart. We don't want to think that the president of the United States could kill someone or could have someone killed but the bottom line is this is all based on money um there was things that she knew whether it be in her head or in the in her diary ultimately millions and millions of dollars could have been at stake had she come forward with all the information that she would have she could have had um not only that but the reputations of not only the president of the United States, but also Bobby Kennedy, um, the, her psychologist. There's so many people whose reputation would have just been tarnished. I think that also you'd find that the CIA probably would have had a little, uh, you know, little little shade shined on them as well. There's just so many links, and of course we can't forget the mafia, her involvement. You know, being close closer to people in the mafia. There's just so many shady characters and shady things. And the fact that her entire house is wired from head to toe, like that is crazy. That means that in order for someone to have had access to the place, someone close to her had to uh, make sure that she wouldn't be home and make sure they had access to the house. Like, you know, that wasn't someone going in and putting a wire behind a, a mirror. You know, that was they lined the entire house with wires. Ultimately, I think that those things point to a huge violation of her privacy. 
imagine if everyone that you surrounded yourself with all of a sudden you didn't know who you could trust and ultimately she couldn't trust anyone i feel all these people were shady they wanted her for something and when they were done with her they thought that they could just shove her to the side and that she'd shut up but clearly she had a diary and clearly she wrote stuff down and i think that after a certain point there's just too much risk involved for people and when you have enough money and influence you can make a lot of things happen and i think that what the kennedys probably had going for them as well is we we all have this mindset we don't want to think that people are capable of this but we also don't want to believe that the president or anyone put in power are capable of this so at the time that this all goes down anyone who could have been pointing fingers at them they would have been labeled as conspiracy theorists and no one wants to believe in those things you know at the moment that you are yes i'm on board the kennedys did this you are labeled with this conspiracy theorist the image that comes to my mind is that guy who is always on netflix and documentaries and stuff and he talks about aliens yeah so we all have this mindset whenever we see him like this guy could be telling the truth but he looks a little crazy and i think that ultimately when you're labeled as a conspiracy theorist People don't want to believe you. You know, it, it's much easier to believe the Kennedys. It's much easier to believe the president than it is to believe that they would have done something so horrible. So, I mean, I, I don't see any other outcome. There's a just a shadow of a thought that maybe she committed suicide in my head. Maybe if we were to not look or not believe a lot of people who have nothing to gain, that have come forward and said, hey, this is my little piece of the puzzle that I know. And all of those little pieces of the puzzle point to, to, this, to this murder conspiracy. If she committed suicide, someone is to blame. Her house is being wired. She doesn't know who, sh who she can believe. Imagine if you have a private conversation with someone and then all of a sudden someone calls you and is like, hey, we know that you're doing this, da 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 you don't know who gave that information up like they could you could literally drive someone crazy if she committed suicide if that's true i think someone pushed her to it someone probably was talking to her on the phone and gave her too much and that just pushed her over the edge and boom done there's a there's a quick story that i'll give really quick and i have to remind you you know marilyn monroe that's not her real name her her real name is norma jean baker and norma reminds me somewhat of myself my first year of college i come from a smaller smaller town um, my graduating class was about 100 people and when i went to college i moved to a very big city one of the largest cities in the united states and i was so naive and I mean, I would go by myself to places around town late at night that I should not have been. And now I look back and I'm just wondering, you know, there could be a podcast about me, you know, if something would have happened. But I believed so many people because I had up until that point felt like people only had their, their, my best interest, my best interest at heart. And I think that a little bit of Norma's problem is that she always felt like no matter if it was the president or if it was someone who uh, was her psychologist, I believe that she always wanted to believe that these people had her best, in best interest at heart. 
I don't think that's a fault in her. I think that's a fault in those people. But unfortunately, there was too many of them. So if by chance she did commit suicide, I believe that it was it was because of that. And again, it would have been death by her own hands, but I think that would be at the fault of another. I agree. It's hard to discount several separate people who report a chain of events in their own timeline minus everybody else's in their own timeline in their own chain of events and you connect all these people and it equals out it makes sense it's hard to discredit that it truly truly is and you know everybody's well why didn't why didn't you know this come up until later Eunice Murray, you know, she seems like a sweet old lady, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to fucking read you something about Eunice fucking Murray here. Now, she wasn't actually asked if Bobby Kennedy was at the house until 1973. And these are all separate interviews, and they were all by credited publications. And I will let you know which one is the police reports. In 1973, she said no. In 1975, she said no. In 1986, she said yes. In 1988, she said yes. And uh, when she was asked, uh, was the door to Marilyn's room locked? Uh, The official police report, she says yes. 1963, she says yes. 1973, she says yes. 75 says yes. 82 says no. 86 says no. When did you look in Marilyn's bedroom window? In the police report, she said 3.30 a.m. One year later, in an interview, she said 2 a.m. And by 1973, she said midnight. Next question was, what made you check on Marilyn? In 1962, in the police report, she said the bedroom light. In 1963, she said the bedroom light. In 1973, in an interview, she said the phone cord. She saw the phone cord still going underneath the door, so that's what made her check on her. So I'm just going to say right now that anybody who thinks Eunice Murray is credible in any fucking way imaginable needs to like a reality needs a reality check sooner than later cuz the simple chain of events you have 3 hours of missing time there it's not good it's not good and then you have all these other separate entities who if you add up all their separate timelines they all compile to make one that actually makes a shitload of sense and it holds more ground than her supposed suicide for me personally. So, yeah, I do believe she was murdered. I hate to say there's there's no doubt in my mind that she was murdered because there's always doubt. You know what I mean? I wasn't fucking there. But if somebody approached me because I did a podcast on, podcast on this to do an interview and paid me a million dollars to research this for a year, I will fucking prove that shit. But that ain't going to happen. So I just got to vent. Here, this is my venting mechanism. But anyway, uh, before we do cut out, Shane, um, I do got to give a special thanks to Brooke. Thank you very, very much, Brooke, for participating in this. You really did a, a great job with your research, and I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank my brother and his best friend, Brittany. Uh, they both came up with this little ending that I wanted to give out. Uh, his friend, Brittany, has always been a very big fan of Marilyn Monroe. and. She's about his age, so she's a little younger. So I think that just goes to show you that many years after her death, you know, she's still someone that people look up to. But with their help, this is what we wrote to close this out with. 
With not only a personal, but also a family history with mental illness, it's easy to believe that her story, her history, her illness, and fame could have very well driven the 36-year-old actress to committing suicide. But why would a woman who seemed to have it all, looks, personality, grace, fame, fortune, and what seemed to be a rekindled romance, end it? Norma Jean, Marilyn Monroe, was a woman ahead of her time. Arguably, there will never be another person who captivated people just by being someone who she was. All we can do is admire the woman who once was and try to piece together her death mystery to finally give not only herself, but the millions of people who still adore her today, some justified peace. And these are two quotes from Maryland. The first is, I knew I belonged to the public and to the world, not because I was talented or even beautiful, but because I had never belonged to anything or anyone else. And the second, Hollywood is a place where they'll give you a thousand dollars for a kiss and 50 cents for your soul. <laughs>